welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. If we don't stop our PDA children's distressing behavior in the moment, won't they grow up to be abusive adults? Or what does an accommodation approach look like for PDA autistic adults? So today I want to take some time during this live to answer this question in a nuanced way. I will put it on the podcast because it is the theory of change behind the approach that I teach. And as the account gets bigger and more and more people see my posts and take them out of context, I know that this question will continue to come up in comments, DMs, and emails. This is because I also know that this is a very reasonable, natural question for a parent who is coming to PDA and neurodivergence and different non-behavioral approach to parenting for the first time. So I'm always keeping that in mind because I remember where I was five years ago, four years ago, and I'm not saying this with judgment. And also, this may not be for everyone in terms of how they want to approach their neurodivergent or PDA child, and I am not here to judge anyone. Okay, so again, the question is, if we don't stop our PDA children's distressing behavior in the moment, won't they grow up to be abusive adults? right? And so I want to specify and clarify what I mean by distressing behavior because I would address this question differently if we're talking about like violence or harmful behavior that could actually result in emotional, psychological, physical harm to another person, including the PDA child or teen. So let's walk through the scientific approach to how I understand this using an example like a child swearing at you, okay? So like you say, hey, could you put your shoes on? And they're like, F you, mom, no. Or, you know, they forget to put something in their backpack and blame you for it when they come home, okay? So like, this is an example of it not being like a de-escalation or risk mitigation situation, which is more like physical violence or really distressing behavior towards a sibling. We're just talking about you and the child or teen in the dyadic relationship. Okay, the next thing I want to say, caveat before I start, is I know and work with many PDA autistic adults who are parents of PDA autistic children because it is genetic. So unsurprisingly, there is a higher incidence of parents who identify as PDA or otherwise autistic in my coaching containers and programs, an incidence like 20% would be PDA identifying of either the parent or the lead parent or the non-lead parent, okay? So caveat that like, yes, I do have some data about what PDA autistic adults look like or how it results if, you know, a connection accommodation approach is used. However, I'm really gonna be coming at it from the theory of change and the data that I have in my own family and the families I've worked with for how it works to not use explaining, teaching, punishing, rewards, sanctions in the moment. All right, so 
Welcome, everybody. This is probably like the hardest thing I teach because it is nuanced, but I'm going to do my best to be super clear. So I'm going to talk about six things. One, the assumption which underlies the theory, the theory and where it came from, the hypotheses and how we can test them, the data that we have that we can look towards, and then the causal mechanisms that I believe are at play, and then my personal belief for what this will look like in adulthood if you follow an accommodation approach without trying to predict your children's future because nobody can do that. <laughs> okay, so before we begin, I need to clarify my assumptions because that's what academics do. And so if we disagree on our assumptions, then it doesn't matter if the theory and the hypotheses and the data is great because we're operating with different basic assumptions about how things work. So my assumption about humans and human behavior has changed through my experience of parenting my son. I was trained as an academic in rational choice theory, econometrics, political science to think of all behavior as rational and incentivized by rewards and consequences. So it's not just how I parented, it was also my academic background. Now I believe, and this is more Buddhist practice than academic discipline, I believe that all humans represent a divine light that can never be corrupted, okay? And that we are not our emotions, our thought patterns, or our nervous system reactions. So if we operate on that premise, it doesn't seem that counterintuitive or contradictory like controversial, but when I explored my own socialization, the education I had, the academic training I had, even the religious upbringing that I had, a lot of the assumptions I was operating on were based on the idea that actually humans aren't a divine light and we need to reward and sanction them into being good, right? So that's the first thing that we need to be clear about of like, if we have a subconscious or conscious belief that like, actually, humans are pretty terrible and violent, and we need to like, rein in their their animalistic nature through control and compliance, whether that's you know, through your upbringing, through a religious practice, whatever, we're going to have a hard time shifting into the trust that underlies this assumption, right? And so this isn't a religious belief. It's, it's a practice of seeing the innate Buddha nature that exists within all of us. It can never be corrupted. It can be obscured by our nervous system reactions, our thought patterns, our trauma, and our emotion. Okay, so that was a big shift for me, but I, in order to do this type of parenting, you have to shift yourself to trusting the innate goodness of your child, even if they're violent, even if they're screaming the F-bomb at you all the time. Because if we don't believe that, then we're always going to revert to trying to control and condition and change our children, right? And this is not an easy shift. Like this might be something that you work on for years, or you might be required to actually try something different and then see the shifts. And then you can start to see that child behind the fight flight or nervous system response. Okay, so that's my assumption. That's how I operate with you guys. That's how I operate with myself, with self-compassion, with my children, even in the hardest moments. So that's the assumption. What's the theory? So the theory, we can look towards adult autistic advocates, and I'm going to name a bunch of them that you guys can follow to understand how the brain of a PDA child or teen works, right? So we have 
I know he's problematic, but I learned a lot from him, so I'm going to name it. Harry Thompson, Christy Forbes, Sally Cat for the internalized expression. We have a lot of writing from Neuroclastic. We have Demi Burnett, who's talking about her internal lived experience as a PDA autistic adult. And then we have all the other autistic adult narratives about like sensory, social communication, executive functioning, nervous system, burnout, all of that. Okay, so if we take what they say as true, which I do, I believe them for how their brain and nervous system works, is that for the PDA brain, the child or the teen, anytime there is a perceived loss of autonomy, freedom and choice, or a loss of equality perceived to another person, a situation, etc., it's going to activate the nervous system to be perceived as a threat right? So if that is true, which I believe other people's lived autistic narratives about how their brain and bodies operate, then we can think about, okay, this is actually related to the nervous system and neuroception, okay? And this is why I keep a brain on in back of me so I can point to it, okay? So if we take lived experience and we take testimonies and we believe it from the source, which I do, then we can turn towards, okay, it's a nervous system disability or difference. What do we know about nervous systems and brains? And then we can turn to an existing literature on trauma, brain science, brain development, and polyvagal theory, right? And so what do we know in the literature, in the academic space about this? What we know is that to oversimplify, there are like two parts of the brain that operate often the frontal lobe or the thinking brain which is where empathy is accessed connection can take place rational thinking cause and effect and learning and then we have the survival brain which is the older part of the brain which is actually operating often on a subconscious level much more quickly than the frontal lobe and it's a reaction that this part is just designed to keep a person alive and all of us that have that. But if you have a PDA child or teen or your PDA yourself, this is going to be related to the perception of autonomy and equality. Okay, so what's happening? Your child or teen is constantly perceiving threat and that part of the brain is telling their nervous system either go into fight or flight or freeze pathway. Okay, so two pathways both related to the nervous system. Fight flight will be both a physiological internal experience and a behavioral experience. So inside the body, you might have heart racing, you might feel itchy, your pupils will dilate so you can like see your focus in order to escape the lion if you're an antelope. Blood will rush to the extremities so you can run or fight. You might vomit or have diarrhea because you're getting rid of excess fluids in order to survive, okay? What's happening for a PDA child or teen is that fight flight is happening, but it's not related to the objective lion that like a parent can see of like, oh my gosh, they almost got hit by a car or kidnapped. No, it's related to the perception, the subconscious perception of threat. The other pathway, which is more internalized, is freeze and eventually shut down, which is like the deer in the headlights or the antelope who actually shuts down and like their body plays dead because predators don't eat dead prey, right? So there's a physiological response where the metabolism actually slows down, the blood rushes away from the extremities in case the lion bites, the antelope, etc. So there's like hormones like in the case of freeze, we're actually getting 
um, endorphins because it's like a shock state and the fight flight, we're getting cortisol adrenaline. So this is physiological, right? And this is really important. This is really important because I'm going to get to the point where parents are like, you can't respond to that behavior without correcting it because it's not behavior. It's a nervous system response. So remember this part of the theory. <laughs> okay. So this is what's happening inside your teen or child's body. However, what do we see on the outside? We don't see where the blood is going. We don't see the cortisol. We might notice dilated pupils or a little bit of clenching fists, but we're not noticing how the blood is rushing to extremities or away from them. What we're noticing is the behavior, which I call the behavioral expression of the disability of PDA, autism. Okay, so what does this look like? Fight or aggression, which might look like F you mom, throwing something, growling at you, flight, running away, climbing on the backs of chairs or couches or windowsills or on top of the van because they don't want to go to school, or they're perceiving threat, it's not under their conscious control, or freeze or shut down, which is like, you know, can be selective mutism, it can be going into a turtle shell crying, but like, you know, noodle body refusing to for example, leave the house. Okay, so yes, these are all very distressing behavioral expressions of the disability. However, they're being misinterpreted by many of us, myself included, four years ago, as under the conscious control of our children and teens. And so when something's under the conscious control here, of course we use strategies that are developed for this part of the brain, which is teaching, explaining, correcting, rewarding, sanctioning, punishing, okay? So when our children have a fight, flight, or freeze response, they are not operating from this part of the brain, which is where the paradigm comes from of teaching, explaining, correcting, punishing, sanctioning, and consequencing in the moment, right? Because what happens if we do that when a child who is PDA autistic or traumatized or otherwise neurodivergent is in the survival brain? For a PDA child or teen, what's gonna happen is that you correcting them, even if it's gentle, even if it's like, we don't swear in this house, or I'm not gonna let you swear at me, or, you know, whatever it is that you reflexively respond with, even if it feels gentle or explanatory, will put you in the energy of being above them. And what happens when they perceive that someone's above them? That's the loss of equality. It pushes them further into their survival brain. So this is not normative. This is not a philosophy. This is just how the brain works, right? So what we know is that if we correct, explain, put ourselves in an energy of authority, use reward, sanctions, or punishment, we're just putting our kids further into their fight, flight, freeze response and pushing them into a trauma response. So this is what I call a choice point and radical acceptance of like, this is just how it works, right? Like you can choose to, and I do this, I, I mess up sometimes, I have my own re responses and reactions, and I'll say like, we don't talk like that in our house, or you know, whatever it is in the moment, and he'll, my son will double down, or get even more escalated, right? So the hypothesis then becomes, and I have tested it with my own son, and all the families I've worked with, and I'll bring the data to you, but the hypothesis then becomes, specifically, if, according to the theory and the assumptions we have, the child is in their 
survival brain. And if we correct, explain, sanction, reward them, they'll go further into it. Then we have to like develop another hypothesis for how this could work as parents. And so a hypothesis is what happens if we diffuse? What happens if we pause and don't say anything? Or what happens if we make light of it or joke? And, and what happens if we focus on instead of correcting the frontal lobe behavior, which is not frontal lobe, we focus on what can actually get them out of their survival brain? What happens, right? And so you can start to see data. When you stop correcting, explaining, punishing, the first thing you'll start to see is that the connection improves. <laughs> you'll start to see that the power struggles reduce. You'll start to see potentially over time that other things start to improve like overall meltdowns in a week, the duration, the intensity, and you may start to see, oh, they're accessing basic needs a little better. They're eating more, they're sleeping more, okay? So I have been doing this for four years in my personal experience and it was a leap of faith, right? However, I do have data now because it's been a long time. So for example, especially when my son was in burnout, I he would literally throw Twix wrappers on the floor and like grunt at me and not speak to me. And you know, he was only eating pirate's booty and popcorn for years. Like I'm not exaggerating here of like, oh, he's picky. Like he, I was very concerned about caloric and nutrition intake. I was worried about a feeding tube. I was worried about hospitalization, okay? But I did not have other choices, right? This is the radical acceptance of how it actually works in their brain. And so the only choice based on the hypothesis I had was I'm going to focus on regulating his nervous system, giving him signals of safety, diffusing all of these moments so that he can get back into his thinking brain and actually access the things he wants to learn and do, like eat and sleep, etc. Okay, so I'll give you two examples. One was from yesterday. I have never, since we went into burnout, I have never asked my son to clean his room or pick up anything. Although now, because he has, uh, and I'm going to talk about this, because he has a window of tolerance and he throws a Twix wrapper on the ground, my, myself or my husband might say like, oh, it looks like you dropped the Twix wrapper on the ground, declarative language, and he'll pick it up. But I wouldn't have done that four years ago. But now we have a fluid practice of collaboration, trust, and overall accommodation. So for example, yesterday, he was engaged with my mother who was visiting for my birthday and his grandma. They were playing a game together and I, my four-year-old was needing attention and I was like, okay, I'm gonna go upstairs with my folded laundry. You're welcome to help me put it away if you want or you can play. And he chose to be with me. We put away the laundry and then we sort of like, I did a declarative sentence about like, oh, it looks like your desk is really covered in stuff. It might be hard to do art there, period. And he was like, oh, let's clean it up, right? And and he's not PDA, so this was like a more fluid, easy practice with him. So we were cleaning it up and what happened? We became a strew. A strew is like a visual cue of something your child can engage with autonomously or not. And what did my PDA son do? He gravitated towards my safe nervous system, saw what we were doing, took over like the the spray, you know, the paper towels and the fantastic spray and started deep cleaning his room. Okay, so this is like 
just in the moment examples of like I never made him clean his room he gravitates toward it towards it when there is an opportunity that I scaffold and strew okay additionally with eating through accommodations and the accommodations you do outside of the basic need all move towards accessing the basic need so for example like him correcting me like Mama, you forgot to put this in my football bag. And me wanting to say, no, you actually need to put that in there. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, honey, I'll remember next time. That's a choice point where I'm, I have a choice to activate or accommodate him. And I choose to accommodate so that it builds in his system that it doesn't build in his system where he's getting to his threshold. And that moment relates to whether or not he can eat. That's the causality, okay? So over time doing this in accumulation, he's gone from, you know, eating pirate's booty and popcorn, literally, that I have to heat up to a specific temperature and deliver in a certain way for him to even eat calories, to he has now finally added hamburgers, grilled chicken, steak, fried fish. Okay, so it's a huge deal, but it did not happen because I like explained it to him and sanctioned him and it, like took a behavioral approach, okay? This is also the sort of data we see when I work with families over a long time horizon. This takes time. Okay, so what's happening? Why does this work? Here's the logic, okay? So your child has a threshold of tolerance for nervous system activation, the PDA child. And every time that their brain perceives a loss of autonomy or equality, they get like a drop in the water bottle towards their threshold. Once they pass their threshold, they're in fight, flight, freeze, right? It's like the window of tolerance from the trauma literature. The uniqueness of the pda is that they're getting this all the time. It's not like, oh, I almost got in a car accident, my nervous system activated. It's constant throughout the day perceiving losses of autonomy and equality and they're moving towards their threshold. And if they move past it, they're in full on fight flight. And if they exist past it, they're gonna go into burnout and be at risk of complex trauma. So what do we wanna do? We want to accommodate and move them below their threshold of tolerance so that when we do need to set boundaries in a case of like health and safety, they will activate, but it's not going to push them into burnout or disrupt the trust and connection that we have. Okay, so there's three things that I believe, I believe, I don't have proof of this because my son is not an adult, (laughs) but I believe that if we take the same person and for one person, we constantly try and teach, explain, and sanction them into behaving a certain way because how they're behaving is inappropriate, but we're just pushing them further and further into their survival response and we're signaling that we don't understand them and we're signaling a lack of connection because we're just like setting off their trauma response you take the other same person and we accommodate the nervous system so that they're not constantly perceiving threat and having trauma signaling safety and trust because we understand them who's more likely to end up as like having mental health issues and becoming abusive in my opinion it's not this one right It's not the person that we're connecting with, giving them a sense of belonging and accommodating a trauma response. Like to me, it just doesn't make any sense to think like just because we're using traditional behavioral methods, like that's the right way for this particular individual. Okay, 
So what's happening when we're accommodating, which may mean diffusing in the moment, which may mean not correcting in the moment of just allowing it to pass. And this doesn't mean you can't like in a regulated moment, two days from now, be like, hey, I noticed your body was having a hard time, period. You know, it really hurt me when you said that, period. (laughs) Right? Like it doesn't mean you can never talk about anything. It's just we're talking about in the moment. So what happens when we choose to diffuse instead of activate as parents or teachers or therapists we're key we're creating a window of tolerance we're building trust because they feel seen and heard even if they don't realize why it's happening right because it could be totally subconscious and then third again this is a theoretical causal mechanism we're creating new neural pathways right we're just doing what we need to do to get them back in the thinking brain which in the moment feels really counterintuitive to not correct someone who's like fuck you right but if we can really ground down into the theory of how the brain works we can see it as like oh their nervous system is activated i can accommodate and then they don't continue to go into that trauma okay so what happens when we create a window of tolerance over time with children and teens and we create connection and trust and we're strengthening neural pathways back to the frontal lobe is that they're spending more time in the part of their brain that can learn access empathy cause and effect and sequencing right so the more time they spend there the more they're actually going to be able to access learning around the things that we want them to learn which we can model for them of like you know i don't swear in my home i don't get angry and like react with the people around me so he is seeing that and learning from it right and so we're modeling instead of like correcting or encouraging compliance through control with our children we're modeling for them how to manage with compassion the disability that they have right and once they're in their thinking brain longer you can use things like therapy with consent you can use collaborative problem solving you can come up with ideas to solve problems but you might not get there until you do this for a year or two i mean that's just the honest truth right because we're we're trying to do something big we're examining our underlying assumptions about human behavior we're operating from a theory that's totally new and that there isn't a lot of empirical research on and that that exists it's mostly parent reports we're developing hypotheses based on literature that's not about pda trauma literature polyvagal theory brain development and then we're experimenting as parents and collecting data right and so the data you might have is like you start using accommodations and instead of kicking you off the couch, your kid like puts their feet under your leg, right? Is that gonna hold up in a peer reviewed journal? No, but does it matter for your family? Yeah, because it's an indicator of connection, right? And that's the beginning of movement towards what your child needs. Then we take the data and we trust ourselves that if the causal mechanisms at play are accurate and the logic is accurate, then we're moving in the direction of supporting our children to be adults who have a nervous system disability or difference or neurotype that does 
disable them. However, we will have modeled for them how to manage their disability. We will have talked to them about it. We will have shown them how to be compassionate and not non-judging in the face of nervous system activation. And in my opinion, we don't have a whole generation of PDA autistic adults who have been truly accommodated and seen. And so we just don't know exactly how it's gonna look, but I will risk letting go of all behaviorism and not correcting in the moment because I know the counterfactual is trauma and rupture for my kid, okay? And like, if this doesn't resonate with you, that is totally fine. Like, I am not a parenting philosopher. I'm literally just trying to survive like the rest of you and support my family and find a way to live with some joy right? And so I'm never going to judge another parent who does things differently than me. And I'll just be honest, if I didn't think that my son's brain worked like this, I would not be parenting like this because the trade-offs are way too high for a family. Like I've had to leave everything. I had to leave my career. I, ha I had to leave the city. I've lost friends along the way, like because of the weird way I do things according to societal norms. And it's just... You know, I'm very grateful for this journey, but it's not something I would have chosen necessarily because it's big trade-offs and cost-benefit analyses. So I hope that serves you guys to feel empowered for those of you who have intuited a lot of this, but now you have the logic behind it. And for those of you who are sort of like exploring like a very natural question of, well, what happens like if we don't correct this behavior in the moment? This is the logic that I'm following for my coaching practice, for the education I provide, and also for my own family. And I will say that it has provided to my own family and to the hundreds of families that I've worked with. But it's also your choice, right? It's not like a, this is the right way and there's a wrong way. And if you don't do it this way, you're a bad parent. Like, I just don't believe that. Thanks everyone for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website www.atpeaceparents.com. To completely transform the way you think about and relate to your child and to bring peace and stability to your home, join us for the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift program.